so much more complicated when you have a nervous system that somebody might get an insert, say they get an insert in the shorter in the shoe of the shorter leg. And they're like, well, that fixed my back pain. It means that the leg length discrepancy was the problem. But again, it goes back to also, you are giving a novel input into the nervous system, a different stress, you're changing the stress in the musculoskeletal system. We know with a lot of pain things, if you just change the stress a little bit, the pain changes too. Hey, welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Tan, and I am pumped to bring you this episode today. I chat with the incredible Dr. Tom Walters. And if you have ever experienced pain, if you know someone who's experienced pain, if you've ever suffered an injury, a niggle, and just wondered why the heck your body is feeling tight, sore, it won't get better this episode is for you. Tom has one of the biggest social media platforms in the world with over a million followers and for very good reason. He is helping millions of people all over the world understand their pain and not only that, understand how they could get out of pain. And that is what we talk about today, what pain is, how we manage pain, especially when we've felt it for so long. And the great thing about this conversation is that it gets you to think about all the things that you could be doing, all the things that you could be thinking about that you're probably not thinking about in order to help your body, help that pain management and get on with your life and get on with all the things that you love doing. So without further ado, let's dive straight into this extraordinary episode with Dr. Tom Walters. Tom, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jackie. Excited to talk about whatever we get into, pain and injury and all those things. So All of the above. And I'm super pumped because as we're talking before we got started, you have been such a big part of my life and such a huge resource for me, you know, when I was practicing remedial massage and um, my personal training. And I recently heard, and you even just said this before, that, you know, you don't like practicing. And I just want to say on behalf of the millions of people all over the world, thank goodness <laughs> that we, we get access to your brain, which has just been so helpful and so brilliant. So I wanted to start off this conversation. Firstly, I'd love to know what your first experience was of physical therapy. Oh, good question. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying all that. It is, uh, I was telling you before, I'm super grateful to have this platform. And I really think of myself as an educator. Uh, the clinical side of seeing patients is kind of what everyone just tells you you do when you go to physiotherapy school, right? That's just like the plan. And it wasn't until I was in that for a little while that I realized education was really where my passion lies. And so I feel very lucky to be in a situation where I can actually pursue education. So um, but yeah, physical therapy wise, my first exposure was actually when I was 16, I had knee surgery in high school. I was a very, I actually did not like school. I was very dedicated to my martial arts career at the time. And so I was doing judo and taekwondo and a little bit of gymnastics sprinkled in. I was on a demonstration team and we would travel and kind of perform and gymnastics was an element of that. There's a lot of jumping in taekwondo and I was having pretty bad knee pain at the time. And it turned out I had my knee x-rayed 
it turned out there's a certain small percentage of the population of people who are born where their kneecap uh, doesn't form into one piece. They have like this little piece that's kind of a floater. It's called a bipartite patella. And it was just a tiny little piece, but it was kind of in close to my patellar tendon. So whenever I'd jump or run, it would hurt. Like whenever my quads would contract, it would hurt kind of a sharp pain. And it wasn't a real bad surgery. They just basically took out that piece of bone. But uh, the downside, this was in 1996, uh, they, you know, surgeons would just immobilize people for a lot longer back in those days. It was like, so they put me in this straight knee brace. I was in it for six weeks. I just, I atrophied so much and I ended up developing, developing a uh, joint contracture. So I couldn't bend my knee past 90 degrees and that all of those things together ended up meaning I got a referral to physical therapy. And that was kind of my first experience with, uh, using exercise to heal the body and kind of correct impairments. Before that, it was just all like performance. Like I just was super into like exercise and figuring out how I could build muscle or, you know, just like become more fit. I hadn't thought of it for injuries. And what point did, did you get, I mean, excited by the fact that, you know, you're now exposed to this new area, which is rehab. Um, and there's so much more possibility within the body and with, you know, human tissues and, and the ability to heal ourselves. At what point do you go out? Oh, there's, this is really important work. Yeah. It's funny. I don't remember thinking that in high school, you know, I think I went yeah. through physical therapy and I thought, oh, I'm super grateful that this exists and my knee bends again and I'm strong again mm -hmm. and I can use it. I think it just got me back to martial arts. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of people. It's like, oh, I'm grateful there is this service that gets me back to the things I enjoy in life. I don't think I actually thought about how cool it was until, like I said, I, when I was in high school, they didn't have anatomy and physiology. My high school didn't offer it. So I just was never exposed to any of this kind of information. But when I went to university and took my first anatomy and physiology class, I became obsessed. I think that was when I was like, oh, this, the human body is amazing. And I it was my first exposure to like, what are the different muscles and what are the different bones? Even though I'd been reading exercise kind of science magazines all through high school, it wasn't that kind of material. It was just more about like what workouts you would do and things like that, you know? So when I took anatomy and physiology, I think I was just mind blown. I remember seeing cadavers and looking at the muscles and just, I got so into it. I literally just like that's all I thought about. I tend to obsess about things when I get interested in them. So I became the, like the a fact freak. that you've just said it's all that you thought about, like cadavers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this guy is, has a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Not the typical. I don't know. I just was like, so I don't know why I got into it. It's weird to think about. You know, it's like sometimes in life, you just like sometimes something, you just stumble on something. You just become so into it. And it's like, it's almost like it's hardwired into you. Uh, that interest. I just don't really know. I mean, I'm sure having the exercise background and being into exercise science, that kind of pushed me that way a little bit. Like I was just into movement and, mm -hmm. but I never really thought about it academically. It was just like, it was more kind of the doing the movement, like the practice of it that I was into. And so, but yeah, it's weird. It just like, I, I could have never guessed that I would have been that into that topic. Yeah. I feel like I'm a little bit similar to you in the sense that I I was always heavily into movement. I was a dancer and never thought about what I was going to do with life except just dance. And it wasn't until my dad said, oh, you need to be thinking about a career. And so it wasn't until that flip 
um, of the switch that I really thought, well, I want to be working with bodies and I want to actually help people get back to the thing that they love, um, which was most inspiring and motivating for me. So I'd yeah, did you know. ever think about teaching dance or was it just thinking I were you right away interested in getting people back to it? So it was more interested in getting people back to it. I did teach. I did uh-huh. do some teaching. And whilst I enjoyed that, I actually I love the doing mm-hmm. as opposed to the mm-hmm. teaching of it. So yeah. that for me, yeah, I, I loved dancing more than I loved teaching it. Um so that was that was why I yeah, and I love, I love human movement and figuring out why someone um, doesn't feel good doing a certain thing, but others do. So it's really super interesting to me. Um, yeah, that investigative side is really cool. Of yeah, you know, I think anything like whatever kind of practitioner you are, if you're most of us, whatever kind of movement practitioner, trainer, like massage therapist, physio, like you are interacting with people who have pain or have movement kind of issues inevitably and everybody's body is unique. And I always think those are probably the patients or clients that are the most fun to me are the ones who come in with just kind of pain that's not related to an injury. They can't really explain why it happened, but we're going on a hunt trying to figure out like what is causing this like let's go through these tests and see if we can figure out what tissue is causing this like why is this happening i always thought that post-surgicals were really boring i just it's like yeah you had an acl reconstruction we know it just you're kind of just doing the same standard kind of there's almost like a protocol it's just you follow it you know exactly yeah like the person who's like there's a detective hunt with the other people yeah so tell me more about that then like at what point because obviously this is a little while ago when you went through school and I would assume there's a lot that's changed in terms of pain science, in terms of even rehab and, and what to prescribe. So at what point, yeah, did you really come to love the trying to figure out what was wrong with someone as opposed to just giving them like the standard advice? Yeah. I definitely had a transition because you're right. Uh, when I, and I, there are a lot of physio schools that I think, think are still like this. They're getting better, but they were very heavy. Their model was this, uh, what we called the PSB or postural structural biomechanical model. So all pain was kind of looked at from either posture, your anatomy and structure or your biomechanics. It was very kind of physics anatomy driven, you know, pain was just looked at that way. So people would come in and you'd analyze their posture. You'd look at their movement um, you know, it just, there wasn't, it probably was, I think I was in sort of a normal clinic my first two years, kind of an insurance based clinic here. And after those two years, there would just be, there would be people that get better with that approach, but there'd be some people that wouldn't get better. And I think that led me to looking more into studying pain. Like what, cause I didn't really actually get, my program did not have a lot of pain science when I went through it. That just, pain science was being studied then, but it hadn't reached the physio schools a whole lot at that point. And I actually got involved in a bunch of forums on Facebook. There was a whole group of physios and chiros and uh, academics who were, had these, there was like a pain science group. And I just kind of stumbled on, it was mostly physios. I just kind of stumbled into it and I learned more about pain in that forum, talking to people on Facebook for probably five or six years than anywhere else. And that 
really kind of revolutionized how I thought about the body and thought about pain and how different interventions worked. And I think it, at the end of the day, it helped me have a more kind of comprehensive view of everything that goes into the pain experience outside of just like, well, you know, sometimes posture and structure and biomechanics and kind of tissue specific things, of course, with some people, those are important and are the main drivers of their problem. But there's a lot of other people who that's not like it's down the list. And there are other factors like their, you know, their emotional status and their thoughts and their stress and their sleep and nutrition and all those other things. Exactly. We're multidimensional. Um, I know that you worked with Cirque du Soleil. And so I'm super interested in this, this pain science and working with performers or elite athletes who are at the top of their game, and, but actually putting their bodies through ridiculous kinds of things. And I've worked with elite athletes before. And what I find super interesting is that their pain tolerance is just super high they can take a lot because of you know what they have to do out in the field or on stage or where it, wherever it is and so i'd love to know like how early on on in your career were you working with them was pain science a thing back then and how did you manage any injuries that that came about from from there and then of course going into clinical practice did that change yeah, I started with Cirque in 2010. So I had been a, I had been a physio for three years at that point, and I think I was just barely in the early stages of getting more into pain science. So I don't remember actually thinking or talking much about these topics with those athletes. I mean, they were like you said, they were super interesting to work with, um, and the pain tolerance. And there's lots of research right on pain tolerance threshold with different athletes. A lot of the studies are on endurance athletes like marathoners and triathletes and things because they just the grit and what they push through how uncomfortable yeah. they are is they're an amazing population. And I mean, it's so cool that you can with training kind of you can push your pain threshold higher, you know, that pain tolerance threshold, you can change it. So they in uh, a lot of people in Cirque du Soleil and the, sh the show that I was on, there were a lot of former Olympic gymnasts and then a lot of dancers, a lot of Juilliard dancers. The particular show is on just had all the dancers, but and some contortionists and those individuals, you could definitely see the pain tolerance threshold. Um, most of them and, and Cirque du Soleil is such an interesting thing because bringing all these people together from around the world. And I've talked about this before, but cultural background is a huge factor when you think about people's relationship with pain and, uh, whether or not they seek care and just what they think about like physio and all those things. And, you know, we had a lot of the, we had a lot of performers who understood physio and didn't feel threatened by it. Didn't, didn't feel like they were putting themselves in a vulnerable spot to come see us. And so they were a little more straightforward and kind of what I was used to uh, in California where I'm at just seeing normal orthopedic patients. But then we'd have people, I remember these contortionists we had were from Russia and they just would not come to like, I knew we'd, I'd kind of heard that one of them was having a bunch of back pain and she just would not come in. It took a lot of kind of persuading to get her to even talk about having back pain to admit it. And, and just, you know, it's not like I was real aggressive about it, but just like, we, I don't know how I remember exactly how, but it was just kind of like trying to plant seeds. And eventually she came in and, but just really, uh, she super high pain threshold just didn't talk about her pain and 
kind of viewed it as a weakness to talk about it. But it ended up, of course, helping her once we talked her into coming in. Wow, that's super interesting. Did that? Did you see a change in her behavior, like from then on, when she noticed the differences in her body yeah. and pain? Yeah, I think yeah. her, you know, just like that, you kind of build that rapport. It's just some people are really hard to crack the shell, you know, and, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it takes yeah. some people just open up right away. You know, like anytime you're working with people, it's some people, it takes multiple sessions of peeling layers before they'll trust you. And, but yeah, yeah. she was, um, I think once she, it wasn't so threatening and she kind of understood what we were going to do and that rapport started to be built, then she didn't have a problem coming in and she'd set up regular sessions and, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> oh, really nice. Good. Super, yeah, totally. Exactly. She just like, it just made her nervous. She just didn't want to, I think it came back to it kind of being like a weakness almost or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can kind of see how that mentality could uh, play a part, especially when you are someone who's so, um, you know, at the top of their game in in their field in their sport or whatever it is and and also when like their income their livelihood is based on what their body can do it can be a very yeah vulnerable um and scary position to say actually i'm not 100 percent. yeah i was gonna say the exact same thing because the physios made some of the decision i mean a lot of the decision on whether or not an athlete should be in the show or not so that is a huge yeah. aspect. I'm sure they were, it was going through their minds. And, um, you know, a lot of athletes, you know, like probably you had some of this in dance, there is often a mentality of no pain, no gain. And so I think you hear that a lot in high level sports, which we totally push back on now. Like, yeah, it's okay to challenge yourself and be uncomfortable. There's a part of that that helps your body adapt positively. But I think there's a lot more focus now on what is the appropriate dose of stress. And if you the, do, the dosage is too high, that's detrimental. If it's too low, it's detrimental. You want to be in kind of that sweet spot and helping people understand that. Mm. Well, how do, you, how do you help people understand that? Because how do you describe or educate what pain is and the type that you could possibly feel that could be detrimental to your body if you continue to do the thing that you're doing. But the thing that you're doing is also really good for you if you do it in a way that's <laughs> not going to be detrimental. It's like this circle, how do you explain that? It is super tricky, right? Because it is often it is counterintuitive to people because in rehab, we often are giving people movements and exercises that trigger or challenge the area that bothers them. So people will sometimes be like, okay, this tendon hurts, hurts. You know, I have tendinopathy, like say I have patellar tendinopathy and now you're going to give me quad strengthening exercises that put more stress on my patellar tendon. Like that doesn't make any sense, but it does. And trying to get people to, it is tricky. You know, I mean, I think a lot of it's based on what people are coming in with. I was just talking with someone about this yesterday. You know, if you have someone, if somebody had a traumatic injury, like they got in a car accident or they were in a sporting accident or something. You know, I think in those situations, you do have to be really cognizant of how much force you're putting on the injured tissues. Cause yeah, you could re-injure them and you have to, I think in those situations, we're more likely to tell someone that if you experience, you know, if you feel pain during this, then we want to kind of be below that threshold and not, you want to listen to that pain and kind of, 
that tissue really is healing and you have to respect that. And so we usually, often we're telling people that if it's a little bit uncomfortable, that's okay. And as long as it's kind of gone away within a few hours, then you're probably in that sweet spot. But if it's like anything bordering on kind of a sharp pain, then it's too much stress and you've got to regress it and modify. But then you have the people who just have pain, you know, and that can be a little trickier because just helping them distinguish between like uh, the person I was talking with yesterday, it's like, you do some exercise. Is this soreness just like soreness? Like I worked out and did something and maybe my body's a little deconditioned. It's not used to that right now. Or is it truly like I exacerbated my pain? Like my, I've kind of revved up that pain system. And a lot of people will stop moving and kind of protect the area. And that can make you more sensitive, right? That can, and then you have people on the other side who just push too hard all the time and they're always flaring themselves up. But it's, it is tricky finding that um, zone. I think in the tendon pain world, there's a lot of research on tendinopathy, what we used to call tendonitis. And most tendon disorders, you'd kind of almost think of more as pain disorders and not really injuries. It's like somebody just usually does something a little too much and their tendon gets aggravated. And I think we're going to try these exercises and we build them up gradually. If your pain, your baseline pain is level or is worse the next day, then we will dial things back. So we kind of like tendon, the tendon science world looks at everything on a 24 hour cycle now. So you do, you load the tendon and then if your baseline pain, it's okay if you have a little bit of pain during the exercise, even for a few hours after, but if by the next morning, your baseline level of pain is now elevated and worse, then that means that what you did the day before was probably too much for you want, you exceeded the tissue's current capacity. And I think that's a good framework, I think for any kind of pain. Um, maybe you didn't have an injury, but like you just got back pain or neck pain. It's like, okay, I'm going to try some of these exercises and maybe I'll just add one new exercise at a time. But if the next day I'm worse, then maybe I've got to go back and look at that. And maybe I need to take one set, do one set less or a few less repetitions, or I've got to change the kind of movement setup and position to regress the exercise. Like maybe I was doing single leg bridges. I'm going to go to double leg bridges or you know, you just have to find some way to modify to, you definitely have to listen to your body when you are trying to find the sweet spot. You know, I think that it's, can be that's, so hard. Totally, yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. And especially if you're not, if a person is not an athlete or doesn't have that background, because mm -hmm. I think, you know, growing up in sports or whatever it is, you just naturally learn, you become a little more aware of your body and listening to it. And I think, people who don't have that background, this can be really hard to teach them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've, I never realized that until I started teaching like, um, movement classes and obviously my background as a dancer, I was, I was able to, um, you know, I, I not only have to do the movements, but I also have to like, look at someone and, make that movement and put that into my body and make sure that we're doing the same movement. And so that awareness of what I can see and adopting that into myself was, was such an important, you know, phase in my life and something I think that everyone should try and do because then that body awareness, it just transfers in so many different ways. And yeah, I just remember teaching classes and I'd, I'd say, I'd give a direction and have everyone doing all sorts of things because it just 
either they either I didn't give the instruction <laughs> really well <laughs> or they're just not able to um kind of internalize that or, or or yeah put that into themselves and move in a way that's um instructed it was it was such an interesting thing to witness <laughs> Yeah, no, that that kind of kinesthetic sense. I have a lot of similar experiences from teaching. Towards the end of my high school uh, career, I was teaching uh, Taekwondo. I would was a black belt and I'd teach a lot of the classes. And it is interesting to watch people move. You give a cue and demonstrate something and then to see what they create with their body. And yeah. even for myself, like I would, you know, you. I think a lot of us, you imagine yourself moving and you imagine like some movie star or something and you're like, oh, I like, I would see this with running, right? Like, I bet I look so good when I run. And then you see a video and you're like, exactly. I look horrible. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. No, there's so much value in just practicing movement and having, I think, especially early on in movement, having um, some feedback, like whether it's a mirror or a video. I mean, you don't want that forever. They talk about that a lot in motor learning that you do want to get away from that over time but i think in the beginning we use that a lot in physical therapy like if it is a runner then you want to modify something about their gait pattern you know you can use uh, video motion analysis or a mirror and kind of they just get that instant visual biofeedback and it kind of help you because a lot of times what you think you're doing with your body isn't really what's happening. Isn't what? <laughs> Absolutely. I've experienced that. And I've obviously, as a dancer, you know, used mirrors a lot. But also we would film ourselves as a group because we were so um, – it was just so important to get all the angles right, everyone doing the same thing. And so we'd film it and then we'd go into slow motion and really break down and, so, and you know, trying to then, you know, seeing what you see and then trying to embody what it is that you're, everyone's trying to do is, is just takes it to the next level. And I think, I think it's just, it's such a skill and something that everyone should be doing. And, and obviously, you know, you can get to the gym and you can do your workouts, um, you know, training in front of the mirror, which is, is going to be, you know, that step for you if you are trying to figure out what it is that you think you're doing, <laughs> what it is you're actually doing. Yeah. Um, but it's so, so important. And I even had a, um, a running analysis, uh, a coach film the way I I ran <laughs> it was so funny we went over it and he's like so you're a bit of a lazy runner <laughs> I'm like what does that mean and we go back over the footage and and he would describe what's happening with the hips and not picking up my feet and certain things I'm doing and to be able to hear something see it being done and then understand what has to be done it is just so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it no, that's a great example. Running coaches like that are so valuable. I think whatever you're involved in running, just so many people run and it's so natural. But, you know, I recommend this to people all the time. It's like, oh, I've got this pain problem and I it happens with running and I've tried all these, I've tried shoes and exercise yeah. and things. It's like, oh, get a running coach, like someone who really has an eye. Sometimes just changing your technique is the most important thing. Exactly. Just and and it doesn't have to be that huge either. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. maybe the way you strike the ground, or maybe the way you know. I mean, I've seen. I I live by the beach, and I've seen some interesting postures when people run, and things like one arm is out and the other is tucked in, or even like a tilt of the head. 
And, you know, these thoughts, sorts of things that we don't even know that we're doing. They have no idea it's like, happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. yeah. So that yeah. small change yep. can make sense. Yeah, actually things. posting all these videos for all these years on social media was actually helpful to my own kind of kinesthetic sense because I would record these in the gym and I just have this big video library on my phone and I would just post them and it was actually helpful because I was recording them for content, but then I would get feedback on how I was actually doing with the exercises. So, Oh, how interesting. Yeah. It's actually been kind of a, you know, a side benefit of just recording myself all the time. Yeah. And I think it's actually probably really in those specific kind of movements and things. I think that I have my movement controls gotten better just because I was regularly looking at video of myself. Yeah. Doing so. I think everyone should film themselves doing movement. Yeah. No, it's huge. I think it's a it's one of those things that might sound silly, but I do think there's a part of it that can be healthy. Just it can be I think there's an aspect of it that could help improve your musculoskeletal health. It, it we're always talking about mind-body connection and I think something like that is a really easy way to help build that mind-body connection. You know, it's like yeah. I can imagine this movement and then I'm going to do it with my body and then I'm going to look at this piece of feedback and see if I'm how close am I really to that? And I think you practice that and keep working on it. And then you just, you improve. It, it, there's so much of rehab and general musculoskeletal health that revolves around neuromuscular control, around motor control. You know, a lot of times people think it's just mobility and strength, but probably the even bigger piece in a lot of cases is motor control, which is that how well can my brain coordinate those muscles to create this movement? And I think that's where just getting better at controlling your body can be huge in terms of injury prevention, injury, injury risk reduction. You know, it's just um, maybe even re reducing your chances of getting certain pain problems. I mean, pain is so multidimensional like we were talking about, but there is an aspect of that that is part of it is like how well do I move and how resilient is my body? Exactly. And I would love to know then, how do you communicate that with a client? You know, they're coming in with pain and, and you see them move and it's actually because they're not moving so awesome. How do you say that? Mm -hmm. And how do you get them to work on that as well? Yeah. If they're a bit, I don't want to say clueless, but if, if what they're doing isn't good to begin with, yeah, how do you educate that piece? Yeah, that's an interesting one because pain – you kind of get into this chicken or the egg debate sometimes with movement and pain. It's like probably when I was first out of school, I would have said, oh, you moving this way is causing your pain. But now I'm probably a little more likely to be like the pain probably is more your movement, you know, is, is a compensation or is, your movement is secondary to the pain and, and trying to figure out because there's elements of both of those in there. Like, there's some parts of just how people move and maybe that did contribute to the pain they developed. Also, you know, there's lots of cases where the person's movement changes because they're in pain. You know, I mean, all the compensations, limping and all these things that people hold their bodies a little differently. And it's, it is interesting how often when you help reduce pain, how quickly the person's movement patterns will start to kind of go back to their default kind of baseline, you know? So I... I think when I'm when I'm thinking about movement and using it to treat pain in the musculoskeletal system, I'm a lot less picky these days about the person having perfect form, honestly. I used to really care about that. I went through a system for a long time. I taught for this Norwegian system that was very, for six years taught for them, it was very 
you were very particular on looking for biomechanical weak links and you would have people move and do these little things. It's like, okay, your pelvis dropped a little bit on the left. And, you know, and I think the longer I've studied pain science and just looked at this kind of relationship between pain and movement, I think humans are interesting in that we all move a little bit differently. It's kind of like a fingerprint and people just have unique movement patterns. And I'm a little, I'm much less willing now to say that's a faulty movement pattern. I think more now I just think about how does movement influence their nervous system and does it trigger their pain? And if it does, how can I change the movement slightly to find the right stimulus for their body and then to kind of implement this idea of graded exposure where it's like I'm going to expose them to little little bits, uh, more challenging pieces over time just to try and change that kind of pain threshold, you know, and more of like a way of making their nervous system resilient and less about trying to correct faulty patterns because, but that's what people think when they come to PT, right? They come, when they come to physio, they think like I have a movement problem or something that needs to be fixed. And so it is a little bit, this is a weird shift for them mentally to think about even if that movement is triggering your pain, it doesn't necessarily mean that that movement needs to be corrected. It just means that maybe we need to desensitize your nervous system and maybe changing your movement helps the pain, not because it's correcting your biomechanics, but because it's imparting a novel stimulus on your nervous system. So I think that's where a lot of the neuroscience stuff is going now is it's like, there's a lot of things that work for pain, to be honest, like a lot of different interventions and exercises and so sometimes it's really, I think, more about not fixing someone, but more just giving them a new input, and that changes the output. This blows my mind, all of this stuff, because I can still, like, getting my head around that for an athlete who, say, is injured, let's just take a runner, for example, Um and, you know, it's just that repetitive movement. And, you know, if they're doing marathons, then obviously their training is going to be up to potentially up to 100 plus Ks a week. And so how can something like, I'm just going to use leg length discrepancy, as you know, the, the, the terms that we've all heard and used in the past, that sort of thing, not influence or have an impact on pain on our musculoskeletal system um, especially when we're doing such repetitive motions yeah right that's one that a lot of people get concerned about because unfortunately probably some practitioner told them blamed everything on their leg link discrepancy which there is research showing that sometimes leg link discrepancies can be a factor, but I think leg link discrepancies are a lot like having flat feet, all these other anatomical things that usually those things you develop slowly through adolescence. So your body adapts to them. You know, I think the example that comes up often are like Paralympic athletes. You look at some of these really asymmetrical movement patterns and things that you might see in the Paralympics and what the body can adapt to. The body's amazing at what it can adapt to. And 
you know, something like a leg length discrepancy, if you have a true leg length discrepancy, like you say your tibia or your femur is longer on one side, well, that probably happened when you're in your teenage years. So your body's been adjusting to that for a long time. If you're like now in your 30s and somebody told you your back pains because your leg length discrepancy, well, why would that just magically have started bothering you? You know what I mean? It's been there for a long time. So, and the truth is 95% of people have a leg length discrepancy. There's been research on this, like, Everybody pretty much has a leg length discrepancy. It's just like having one foot that's bigger than the other. We don't worry about that. Oh no, your shoe is a little tighter on that side. Better stress out about it. You know, it's like, um, so leg length to me is very similar. The body is naturally asymmetrical and that's what's kind of cool about it. Like there's asymmetry and everyone's is different. And, but the tricky thing is that somebody might get an insert, say they get an insert in the shorter, in the shoe of the shorter leg. And they're like, well, that fixed my back pain. It means that the leg length discrepancy was the problem. But again, it goes back to also you are giving a novel input into the nervous system, a different stress. You're changing the stress of the musculoskeletal system. We know with a lot of pain things, if you just change the stress a little bit, the pain changes too. But it's tempting for people to think, well, people just want to think about the body like a car, like, oh, my tires are wearing out if you're getting new tires, you know? So yeah, absolutely. It's, just, it's not that easy. It's, it's so much more complicated when you have a nervous system. It yeah. just, you have to remember you have this, like, you have to think of it. Um, Lorimer Mosley is this really famous neuroscientist in Australia, right? And he does such a great job of talking about kind of comparing our nervous system to sort of like the indicators and alarms and lights in your dashboard in your car. It's like, the car isn't just the shocks and the tires and the frame and the, you know, the chassis. It's like you also have all these wires that are detecting your tire pressure and your oil temperature. And that is more similar to your nervous system. It's like those fingers that are reaching out and sensing things. And, you know, in the human body, you just have to remember that when you change how you move or change your shoes or you add an insert to something or somebody pushes on you, you get a massage or whatever. That is, you have sensors that are picking up on that, and that often will change. Pain is one of the outputs, and that often can change that output. I love that, and I think it was it wasn't really clear to me until I um, did some training or uh, yeah, did a bit of study through Z Health, Doctor Cobb. And he demonstrated he had someone who would lift their arm up and would get to a certain height. And then all he would do is uh, with the hand by the side or the arm by the side, he would just like, it was three different stimulus. It was one was a feather to the hand and then would raise the arm and see what would happen. The other was a, a pin prick. And um, I think another one was just a pencil. And each of those stimuli gave a different result in terms of how high and what range this person had with their shoulder. It was super fascinating just by changing a stimulus in the hand, did nothing to the shoulder and you were able to produce a completely different result each time. So yeah, until then it. I was like, all right. <laughs> that's an amazing, that's actually a really cool teaching example. Cause it's so true. I mean, this is something we talk about in pain all the time that almost everything you do to someone can change their pain. I mean, there's so many factors, even if they just believe that what you're going to do is going to help them. But you know, all these things like 
and I was guilty of it for a lot of years. It's like, okay, this person has uh, shoulder pain. I'm going to do a posterior mobilization and, and then they'd feel better. And I'd be like, well, that's because we glided the humeral head posteriorly <laughs> yeah. and your yeah. joint, there's better centration and that's taking stress off. You can go down this whole biomechanical theory, which maybe, but there, we don't have a way to prove <laughs> that. You know what I mean? So it could just be that you trust me and yeah. I touched your body and that stimulated nerve endings in your skin. You know, so the fact that yeah. like a hand one like that can change the shoulder, it just shows you that it's just, it, we just can't measure all that. It's hard to know what's influencing the person. I, I think that's why you have to, that's with evidence-based practice. You have to, you can't just base it on anecdotes. I mean, this is why there's always has to be a science piece to things because in studies that randomized control trials, they'll have a sham group where they will do some kind of fake intervention and compare that to the real one. And those studies are helpful because they let you know, is it just the person believing that this is going to help them or does the intervention actually have some efficacy? Because if you just always base it on anecdote, our memories are so horrible and you could do things on people and totally convince yourself that like, you know, some weird thing, like just, if I just, you know, hit everyone in the leg for each condition or whatever, like you just, you can, <laughs> yeah. I, maybe it's like scraping, like instrument, like you hear about scraping, like instrument. Yeah. I don't, you know, like some people really like that and some practitioners can really use it, but is that you could convince yourself that that maybe is, the efficacy of that is higher than maybe it really is if you just are basing everything on anecdote. It's such a, I, yeah, this conversation, it's a fine line between going, well, what does work? What doesn't work? What should I be doing? What should I even be saying to clients to make sure that I'm not, you know, saying the wrong thing or misleading them or giving them wrong information? Like, yeah, how do you have that conversation? And and another, you know, there's so much information on social media or Google something and it's going to spit something at you. Like there's so much out there and all these terms, leg length discrepancy, lazy glutes, <laughs> hips are out, upper cross, like all these things. We're just kind of like that, that stuff isn't real anymore. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to a client or a patient and you know they're seeing all of this stuff from all the people that they follow and they're like well what the heck do I do and why am I even here why should I be here like what's that conversation with people who are in pain and have just heard that you could you know tickle your hand with a feather and that could produce a different outcome totally yeah I think you know I think what I'm often doing is breaking things down into categories for people like interventions, like what category do they fit in and which ones have the best, which ones kind of have short-term evidence and which ones have long-term evidence. And I think even if like the feather on the hand changes your shoulder pain, it's probably only going to change it for a little while. And there are a lot of interventions that fall into that kind of short-term, they don't, they don't tend to last for a long time. And that's usually the things that somebody else is doing to you, you know, like whether it's a physio mobilizing you, it's a chiropractor adjusting you, or it's a massage or it's cupping or it's acupuncture. Like those things, I usually am telling people like, look, those things can help a lot of people and there's research supporting a lot of them, but they tend to be more in the short term, kind of like six week, maybe they kind of help calm things down and, and maybe you use them 
once in a while just to feel good and that's fine but you don't have to i'm always kind of trying to help people understand try to take away the belief that you just don't need to feel like you're dependent on that you don't need to have that thing to stay healthy the thing that has the long-term evidence is something you can do on your own which is movement and exercise so movement exercise has the best evidence and i think that because you can do it yourself you can at the end of the day the goal in working with anyone who has pain or an injury is to teach them how to self-manage and to build boost self-efficacy like empower people to feel like i can take control of this and help myself and that's the great thing about exercise and movement is it has the best evidence for long-term musculoskeletal health and it's stuff you can just do on your own so you might sprinkle in like of course even if you do all the right exercises sometimes something's going to hurt and flare up like i have problems right now and i'm a physio and things hurt so there is a time and place if something you're struggling with something to go see someone and have them work on it but usually those things that are done to you are those passive interventions and they just they have kind of a short-term window. You have you go, go into it with the mindset of, I'm just going to sprinkle these in a little bit until my pain calms down. And then I'm going to go back to the active stuff, which is the movement exercise where I have to participate in it. And I think maybe that's helpful for people is just to break it into those two categories. And you know, you have all those passive things that maybe you like and you use once in a while. Um, you implement a little more of if you have pain or an injury. But then as things get better, you really want to shift your focus towards moving your own body with your own muscles and nervous system. And that has the best long-term evidence for keeping you healthy. Yes. I, that's one thing that I'd always, yeah, advocate is that movement. And obviously the studies there, the science is there. It's the thing that you need to be doing for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so I would love to know, <clears throat> you are obviously very popular on social media and there's a lot of people out there who are on social media, <clears throat> whether it is these uh, movement professionals or um, physiotherapists educating lots of information. I'd love to know your thoughts around, um, and even like with AI now, it, it's so interesting to me. We can input something, so write me a program for my knee, into AI and it's going to spit something out for us. What's your thoughts around that? Is there something that we need to be mindful of as someone who's going to walk away with a program that AI generated for us? Um, yeah. yeah. How do we manage that? Is this a good thing because we're, you know, taking ownership of our body and we're, we're um, moving forward with something or is this something that you think yeah, fine line between what's good for us, what's not good, when to see a professional. Like, what are your thoughts around all of that? I think it's probably mostly positive, honestly. I think it's kind of a step past what, like, me posting on social media is. If there's AI that you could just say, hey, can you create a evidence-based program for patellar tendinopathy, and it spits out some exercises and kind of a – I think that's probably mostly positive because it gets people, you know, the fact that the person's even searching for that and thinking about it to me is a good sign that they are taking ownership and accountability for their issue. And I think what's going to happen with all of us practitioners is that um, if you're interacting with people in pain, you're going to be more like a pain coach. And I think that's where AI is going to have a harder time is 
practitioners will be focused on sort of principles, you know, and like, how do you incorporate helping the person navigate that process? Like you might be able to go on social media or put something at AI and get all the right exercises. And maybe it's even organized well into a good plan. But I think patients and clients often have a hard time knowing like the questions like you were asking at the beginning, like, is this an okay amount of pain? Like, how do I know when to progress this thing? Or how do I modify? I think just that, I think so much of what I do these days is really just helping people navigate their problem that they have going on. It's not really that I'm, I mean, of course, like if somebody comes in, I'm giving them maybe work on them and giving them specific exercises, but they could probably go find those exercises with a little bit of research online now. So it's really helping them just kind of figure out how to most efficiently work through that process. And there is a certain amount of that, that if people are going to rely on social media and and maybe AI, that they're going to have to understand some basic principles so that they can navigate things without getting injured or making something worse. Or maybe that's, again, maybe that's where the practitioner comes in as like a quarterback, you know, like kind of a consultation to like, just get you going. I mean, that's uh, most of the people I see these days are kind of like that, where a lot of times it's just a cup, one or up to three visits of just kind of getting them going. And then it's so different. When I was first out of school, every session was just all manual therapy. I just, people came in every 30 minutes, I had someone new and I was just working on them with my hands. And then I transitioned out of that and then I was doing hour long sessions. I'd literally work on the person the whole hour with my hands and I still do some manual therapy, but I, I spend way more time now just talking with people about how to navigate symptoms and how to integrate movement and exercise and manage things on their own. It's way more counseling esque than, you know, hands on. And and it's needed because when when would they've ever had these types of conversations about their own body? Yeah. Yeah. And the healthcare system doesn't usually allow for the time for that. They don't get it from doctors. And I think it's a lot of us, like it's movement practitioners where they're there with you for an hour and they can talk about stuff. It's it's all the trainers and massage therapy and some physios, if they're lucky enough to be in a setting where they can spend more time. People don't get a lot, people just don't have the time to tell their story. That's so important when they're in pain and and important as the practitioner to actually know how to help them best navigate that issue. You said um, in terms of potentially getting a, you know, getting a program from AI and it spits something out for you, you said as long as people understand the basics, then we're yeah. all good. Like, what do you mean by the basics? What do they need to understand? Yeah, yeah, it's uh well, and it's going to vary depending on the condition. So I think it's probably, I, this is going to be the place where I think practitioners continue to be helpful to people. But a lot of the basics for people are going to revolve around having sort of a, you know, having sort of an understanding of what kind of we were talking about, like what level of pain is okay. And then how do I modify in a little way, if you're going to not see someone and just work on things, you either need to do enough research to where you just kind of understand, like, what are the movements my body can do? What are some of the like primary muscle groups? And then how can I change an exercise to make it easier or harder? It's like regression and progression principles, yeah. which you take for granted when you've been somebody who's gone to the gym for years, you just know how to make an exercise easier or harder. But 
I think if someone doesn't have that background, that's kind of what they have to learn is like, oh, it hurts when I do this. How can I regress this exercise? Can I go to like unilateral to bilateral? Can I change the lever arm? Can I change the load, the range of motion? Like there's just things you know when you're someone who's exercised, you just know how to modify. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's so important. And we all should be moving. So this knowledge is really essential for life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. And it might just mean that you just do some personal training sessions, you know, like go work with someone for a few sessions and just kind of figure out like, what are the kind of what are basic movements and exercises and muscle groups? And how can I spend enough time with that trainer that you know how to change things and modify. And then you just take that knowledge into, it's really kind of the same knowledge. It's like basic kinesiology knowledge. You know, it's just basic human kind of movement knowledge that then you take into, it applies to any kind of injury or pain issue. And obviously you can really get into the weeds with certain issues. But I think the cool thing is that most conditions get better with time. And if you just appropriately stress them and kind of listen to your body, like you work on regaining mobility if it's lost, and then mostly focus on using resistance training to make your tissue stronger. Exactly. And I think we've all experienced a time in our lives where we've had pain and not done much about it. (laughs) Over time, it goes away. Yeah. 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 Proof is in the pudding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And a lot of practitioners will take credit for that. You know, a lot of times. Exactly. And I probably, I'm sure I thought this a lot in the past too. Like somebody would get better over weeks of coming to see me. I'd be like, yeah. Of course. (laughs) It's a nice ego boost. (laughs) Believe it. But there's all these studies, you know, where they just like track people and they call it regression in the mean, like people just get better. Most things just get better. Some things take weeks, some things take months, sometimes up to a year, but most things just, if you stop aggravating them and just kind of try to modify your lifestyle, they usually get better. Yeah, exactly. Um, But for the athlete who needs to get better quickly, can you fast track that? It depends on what it is, I think, you know, uh, I definitely think so. I mean, I think, I guess the answer would be yes. I think that it's way more efficient if somebody's guiding you through the process Mm -hmm. than, you know, because there's going to be a framework with a practitioner. There's going to be a framework of, you know, first, let's get your symptoms under control. Then let's restore impairments. Like if there's any impairments, you know, because that's what we're always looking at physio is like, do you have a mobility, a range of motion impairment? Do you have a motor control impairment? Do you have a proprioceptive impairment? It's like, so that practitioner is going to be trained in how to identify those. And so then they will identify it. That will lead to some sort of exercise usually, or maybe a hands-on intervention that's meant to help correct that impairment. So that will happen more quickly than you just trying to hopefully figure it out on your own, which I think a lot of impairments fly under the radar and don't sometimes don't aren't fully, I don't want to say corrected, but like fully resolved. If you don't see someone like you might have a little bit of a lingering mobility impairment or have a motor control impairment that predisposes you to injury if you didn't see someone and trained and knowing how to identify it. And then, you know, and then somebody, and then after all those impairments, you're kind of past that. Then a lot of it is, uh, you know, most rehab programs will end with resistance training it really has kind of the best evidence for reducing the risk of injury, which makes sense. It's like your all of your tissues become more resilient when you put load on them and mm. just putting load on your system makes all of your tissues more resilient. And 
I think most people can kind of wrap their head. They can imagine that. It's like, okay, I've got this musculoskeletal system. It's got muscles. And most people are familiar with like, if I lift weights, my muscles get bigger. It's sort of like just helping them understand. But doing that also makes your tendons stronger, your ligaments, your bones. Like it, it benefits your whole musculoskeletal system. And this is so obviously important. And I wanted to read, a, uh, not a quote, it's a stat. I think that you've spoken about um, that 30% of elderly people who fall and fracture their hip die within the next year. Isn't that crazy? And th- I mean, it, it blows my mind, but it's actually sadly something that my husband and I were talking about because of we know someone, family, um, a friend who has experienced this and sadly has passed. Um, and I just go, well, well, what could they have done? Um, and, and obviously, is it related to that? Obviously, if it's not, then, you know, that's not, um, it's a non-issue. But, um, I, you know, I think about my parents, they're getting older and trying to encourage them to move more, to lift some weights and get their bones stronger, um, to make getting off the ground easier. I know that's something they avoid doing because getting up can be hard. Like how can we really educate people to understand the fact that movement is so crucial to our life Mm -hmm. that we just, you can't not do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's so major. It only takes visiting nursing homes a little bit to see, you know, some of the negative side effects that come from being more sedentary and not taking care of your body. And, and, you know, the person who has a hip fracture, there is so much that stat could drop so much if everyone moved and strengthened after that surgery. You know, it's just that so many people that injury happens and it's scary to them. So in response to being scared, they become more sedentary because of, you know, it's like this idea that if I don't get up, well, then I can't fall again. But obviously that being sedentary leads to all these other, you know, deconditioning and atrophy. And then when they do have to get up again, it just, their likelihood of getting injured is way higher now. So, Mm. and then you have all the negative things that come from being sedentary, pneumonia and just all these systemic issues that can, come up that um so i think i feel like so much of uh, my motivation is around trying to just help people in the general public understand how important it is to move on a regular basis and to just you don't have to go to a gym sometimes it's just doing like chair squats like you just put a chair behind you and touch your butt to it and just do those every day and try lunges and try to do some push-ups or get a band and do rows and just it doesn't have to be a lot of people don't like those exercises it feels like homework to them you know like going to the gym and lifting weights or something is intimidating or it feels like oh i just i don't enjoy this at all i'd rather be outside doing something active and i think i totally get it so it's like let's try to reduce the friction and just have some things at your house maybe a five or six exercises that you do three or four days a week or something, you know, you don't have to do a ton to actually gain strength and, and maintain muscle mass and things. It doesn't have to be as much as I think people often think it has to be way more than it is. And just doing something, even with body weight can make a huge difference. And, but it is hard because I mean, my, um, 
you know, my parents are like this too, where they're just not motivated. They're just, they don't exercise is not a part of their identity and they just don't set They're fine. They're no interest in doing that. And even mm-hmm. I can put all the education <laughs> I want out there. And, <laughs> You're like, do you know who I am? I know yeah. what I'm talking <laughs> yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. it just, they just, it's, it, I don't, it's, and my mom's a nurse. Like she's in healthcare. She just uh. doesn't, it's just not enjoyable. So I, it is really hard. You know, I mean, that happens so much in physio where people are motivated while they're having pain or injured, but as soon as they're discharged, mm. done with ever exercising yeah. again, you know, so. Mm, absolutely. Is, I don't know. It's a tricky, I think that kind of behavior change element is probably the hardest part of a lot of. Yeah these kind of questions what do you what do you think is the bare minimum like to convince someone like all you have to do is this mm-hmm. once a day or once uh, you know twice a week like what's the bare minimum and what does that look like i think it's probably twice a week and the bare minimum is probably twice a week i mean it probably could be once a week honestly if just once a week you did a set uh, you know like Maybe you did a set to fatigue for each primary muscle group. That would be huge. Like if you're already doing nothing, just there's even research on this now where it's like just doing a set a week for each muscle group to fatigue can be hugely positive. There is research. Yeah, there's some (laughs) out there. It's like there is stuff. the, The muscle kind of, I think it's around this idea of like how can we encourage people to just stay active and work on strength for longevity purposes. Like what is the bare minimum? Like can we just get people to move and do something? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that probably is the bare. I mean, I think to me, I would say a lot of times the strength and conditioning research would have said you need two days a week to kind of maintain strength. That was kind of like the old thing we always said. And I mean, I think in an ideal world, that's what I would say is like, if you had, if somebody at a bare minimum two days a week could spend 15 to 20 minutes, just going through like five or six kind of multi-joint compound exercises like a air squat and calf raises and like maybe a push-up. If you can't do it on the ground, you could do it on a table, like up against a table or a wall or whatever, or like some kind of rowing type of exercise uh, with a band or whatever, you know, a dumbbell or something. I think you could literally just have a little list. It doesn't even have to change. You could do the same exercises every time, each of those two times in the week just for 15 or 20 minutes, just go through and do repetitions until you're tired and do that circuit two or three times. Like it doesn't have to be, it can be really pretty easy. That's it. What do you say to, I get this a lot from certain people, but I walk every day. Isn't that enough? (laughs) That one is so common, right? It's so common. Yeah. Even with runners, they'll be like, why would I do leg strengthening? I run, you know, and (laughs) yeah. They're just different. They're so different. Those that's it's a different stimulus, and there's so much value in heavy, slow strengthening. It's just different than you know when you walk, your muscles are only going to be at like twenty to thirty percent of their maximum contraction strength. They're not working that hard. You know, it's walking's great. I mean, I try to walk every day and get steps. It's like it has cardiovascular benefits. It for sure does have musculoskeletal benefits, but it's just different than what you get from the strength training helps maintain your muscle mass. And we are all losing muscle mass as we age. It's this whole sarcopenia. It's like people are kind of used to hearing about losing bone density and bone mass as they age, but we also lose muscle mass. And 
losing muscle mass, if you take that down the road, it might be hard to imagine, you know, if you're a little bit younger right now, but that is the thing that is the one of the primary reasons people lose functional independence. You know, if you go, I, for a period of time, I worked in um, skilled nursing homes and, you know, when people lose muscle strength and muscle mass, primarily muscle strength, they can't do things independently anymore. So like they can't even, like we would talk about how much assist someone needs with a transfer. Like they're going to get out of a chair and transfer to their bed to go to sleep. You know, sometimes people need uh, a max assist where you have to like literally grab them one, two, three and count and stand up. Sometimes it takes two people. And so, or is it a moderate assist or a minimum? Like that, that, that issue coming about is a muscle strength issue. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, it's primarily muscle strength. And so it might not seem like a huge thing to you now, but you want to work on building muscle strength and muscle mass now because there is going to be this slow decline that naturally happens with aging. You can really help offset that with strengthening and offsetting that now will mean that later you are less likely to be in a situation where weakness is inhibiting your function and putting you in a situation like that where you're living in a facility where you require regular skilled care just to carry out basic life tasks. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's huge. Um, yeah. And it's one of the things that I've certainly said when they've said, oh, isn't walking enough. I'm like, well, does it teach you or does it get you off the ground? <laughs> exactly. Can you get up and down off the ground easily? Um, yeah, it's a whole different, yep. A whole different set of things like the mobility demands of getting up because that's yes. a great test that getting up and down off the ground exactly. like that's actually mm. been studied and scored and it's related to mortality like if people need to use a hand or they lose their balance like you lose points and they would track people over time and the people that required more touching or loss of balance were the ones who died earlier in the study so yeah it makes sense. wow but, yeah you want to it just it is a different i mean i think that's a great example getting up and down off the floor it's a completely different set of mobility demands and strength demands as opposed to something like walking where your your joints aren't going through a large excursion you don't need to like yeah. generate a lot of muscle force just totally different yeah exactly tom i could talk to you for hours and hours and hours the body's amazing there's so much to talk about yeah there is so much and yeah i mean like i said everything that you've done on your platform i mean i'm just so grateful for and so grateful for your time with me today um before we we wrap this up tell us about your book because it's like i feel like it's the book you consult before a consult yeah yeah that's a good way of putting it i need that as a, i need to quote that somewhere uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah that that was kind of the goal with it really honestly was to create this kind of it's big you know it's like textbook size so i get a lot of comments people saying when they've received it like whoa this is really big it's almost 500 pages it is it's like a university textbook but it's for the regular person it's meant to be kind of this like pretty coffee coffee table book that looks cool just sitting there but you could also each joint region has its own chapter. So it's like if I have a rotator cuff problem, I could open to the shoulder chapter and all the programs have pictures of me doing the exercises. So it's just what we talked about. Like if exercise has the best evidence, these programs are organized into three phases, like if you came to see me in physical therapy. So it's meant to kind of have that pain coach, kind of injury coach built into it. So it takes some of the thinking out a little bit where if you just have a list of exercises, you might not necessarily know when to progress, like what order to put them in. 
So the idea was to kind of create something that would be similar to like what I would prescribe in, in physical therapy that kind of slowly increases the stress on the person's tissue and takes them through those things I was talking about before, like let's get try to calm pain down first and let's work on mobility and motor control. And then lastly, in phase three, we'll work on building strength. And a lot of the exercises I've been trying to tell people, it's, it's a little bit tricky because I'm called rehab science. Everyone just thinks the exercises are only for when you have pain or injury. But we know, especially resistance training exercises, which is phase three in every program, <clears throat> just implementing those can also help protect you from injury and just keep you healthy. So that's been kind of a rehab kind of is prehab. It just is the mental, it's just the state you're in when you go into it. Like rehab exercises, mobility and strength exercises are also just prehab exercises. It's just that you're doing them when you don't have a problem. So. Or, or they're uh, just exercises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's just exercises. <laughs> just exercises. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny how often, you know, this stuff can seem really complicated, but it's like, it is just exercise. It's just exercise. That's it's it. just like, Mm -hmm. it's yeah. like they're specific to an area and a tissue so i get that that part sometimes is complicated it's like okay if you're a regular person you might not know like what are the actions of my rotator cuff and what would be the specific exercises for that muscle group but once you figure it out it really is just exercise and it's good to do when you have an injury and it's good to do when you're not injured you it's don't. just yeah totally yeah so yeah that was kind of that was the goal with the book was just to put all that together, you know, social media, you can't get into all the nuance. So I, yeah. that always bothered me. I've said this a lot on, before, but I didn't want people to think that a post where I showed five or six exercises was all that physical therapy was because it just, it's so much, it's a much more comprehensive process. And just, you want people to understand some of the pain and injury science and have some of that knowledge about their body. And then to take that into you're kind of hoping to give them some of the principles I was talking about before that allows them to kind of navigate the process on their own. Yeah. It is like, it's like the, it is, it's, 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 it's like you said before, it's a consult before a consult. Most things get better with time and exercise and you can learn all that in a book just like you can on social yeah. media or wherever. And that's what I think is so beautiful and so important about the work that you do. Um, you communicate it in a way that really it doesn't matter what, your background is you really can look at something go yep that's what i feel you're describing what i feel when i do this i should be doing this mm -hmm. and that's what i yeah love. yeah no it's so fun i love it i love teaching about this stuff i love seeing people understand something and then um seeing them understand something about their body something new and then having that benefit them in their lives whether they have less pain or they're able to avoid a surgery or they just like move and function better and get back to doing things. It's that's like the best part of all of it is seeing those kind of comments, you know, yeah. just, it's so cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tom, um, this has been awesome. I have one last question for you. So for those who are in pain right now and potentially lost a bit of hope because maybe they've been in pain for a little while, What's your message to them? I think the message would be that there really is hope when it comes to dealing with pain. And pain can really make people feel hopeless, especially when it's lasted and you get into that kind of persistent or chronic pain kind of area where it's been around for a long time. And there's so much information out there, which can be really good, but it can be overwhelming too. And sometimes you just, your wheels just spin and you don't know what to start doing. Mm -hmm. If people can maybe go away from this 
just thinking about two ideas. I think the first thing I would encourage people to do is just to think about all of the factors that can influence your pain system. So things like, am I getting enough sleep? Uh, what, how stressed am I? Like, do I need to incorporate some things to battle, to push back on stress? Like maybe it is a mindfulness or a meditation practice and really trying to implement something like that to kind of calm the waters down a little bit, you know? So, um, what is my nutrition look like? Uh, try to just calm things down. Like how can I calm things down? Listen to your body. Like we were talking about before, so much of it's kind of listening to your body. So many people, sometimes people just they don't want to change something or they don't even realize it's happening or they haven't thought about it. And there's something that's continuing to aggravate them. Maybe they're sitting for too long and they need to take more breaks or maybe they are participating in some activity that keeps flaring it up. And so I think just kind of making that the first goal of like, how can I kind of calm things down? And maybe that is seeing, trying out different types of practitioners like physio or maybe it's chiropractic or maybe it's acupuncture. Everybody's pain system and pain is unique. And so Sometimes it does take some experimentation to find the right thing that helps you and the right practitioner. Like you have to have that rapport and trust the person. So I think just be okay with, I know it can be kind of annoying and takes time, but sometimes just trying to find the right person. And then once you find them, that's your like go-to person that's empowering and has the skills and the competency to kind of help calm things down. So I'd say that's kind of the first stage. And then after that, it's just try to come up with, and this is probably where a practitioner can help you is, or just in your life in general, try to think about this idea of graded exposure. Like what are the things that trigger my symptoms? And rather than avoid those, because a lot of people do that, they become fearful and they avoid the things that trigger them. Try to just figure out how you can add that thing in little small doses because your pain system really can become more resilient and you can increase your pain tolerance threshold. So just figure out, okay, these are the things that tend to trigger me. How can I do little bits of this, but just like scale it back, dial it back. And if it causes a little bit of symptoms, you flare up, that's natural. Like rehab and people's improvements is never this like perfect linear thing. There's setbacks all over the place. So, but as long as you feel like you have kind of a general positive trend, you just try to, over time, as you listen to your body, add little bits of increasing stress and it will adapt. That's the cool thing about neuroplasticity is like your nervous system will adapt and, but it takes time. Sometimes I think that is the realistic expectation is that sometimes people don't appreciate how long things take. And sometimes it can take people like eight months to a year before they look back and they're like, whoa, I'm in a different spot now and things are better. But when it cha- when something changes so slowly, it's hard to appreciate like those week to week changes. It's hard to see the change sometimes and you have to kind of step back. And that's where sometimes like writing things down, like kind of journaling, like just making note of how you feel or sometimes that can be helpful for reflecting back because most of us, don't really think of something being better until we're 100% symptom free. But there are things that change along the way that if you can notice and be thankful for, it kind of helps the momentum and keeping you hopeful during the process. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. And I love that graded exposure because I think that is something that we need to incorporate in our life in general, in anything that we choose to do that is um, painful or hard. Um, yeah, it's always going to help us 
Gross. It helps on lots of fronts. Totally. It helps on anything yeah. that's like stressful or challenging. If you just mm. don't run from it, just try to add little, just slowly confront it. And usually exactly. you become less sensitive to it. Yeah, that's it. Oh, I love that so much. Tom, the last question of the episodes, I always love to throw it over to the guest and get you to ask a question of this incredible listener who is with us today. What question do you have for them? I think the question that I'm always curious when people come in is when I'm talking to people in pain or have injuries, I think my question often is, have you really taken the time to take a real look? at these other factors, you know, like all the factors that can go into keeping your musculoskeletal system, your nervous system, and your pain system healthy. Most people are just thinking about things very specific to their movement system, like posture and biomechanics and things. But are you thinking and really seriously, you know, taking action on some of those other systems? Like we all hear about how important sleep is, and nutrition and stress management and things, but you can just in it one ear and out the other about those, but they are so influential when it comes to how your body feels and pain. And so I think that would be my question to people like, are you thinking about those factors? And if you are, are you really um, putting strategies in place to try and address them? And then just, you know, and then see how they influence how you feel. I think just, are you, are you paying attention to those and are you trying to take action to just make small improvements in each of those areas? So good. Brilliant. Such an important question, Tom, you're incredible. I appreciate everything you do and certainly um, your time today. Thank you for being with me. Thanks so much, Jackie. I know it's a little bit later for you, so I appreciate it. Thank (laughs) you for being on. I love talking about these things. I hope it's helpful to the listeners. Uh, like you said, we could just talk for hours about all this stuff, but I hope there's some little nuggets in here that help people navigate this process because it is, it can be a lot to think about. And then at the same time, sometimes it can be what you actually do can be kind of simple. It's just getting going. So hopefully there's some helpful things in here for people. That is Dr. Tom Malters. If by a small chance you are not following him, I have all the links in the show notes for his social media, for his incredible book, if it is something that, well, I think everyone should have, at least as a resource to turn to whenever they are, well, whenever you are feeling soreness, right? Whenever you're feeling these niggles that you kind of just don't know where they came from. I mean, if you're someone who moves and trains a lot and then all of a sudden you're feeling a bit tender or, or soreness in a certain area and you're not actually sure why that's there this is a great resource for you to check out and 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 treat it in a way that's suitable for you and what feels good as well so those links are all in the show notes if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends leave a rating and a review because this really helps the podcast so i would be so appreciative if you took 30 seconds to rate this episode As always, I appreciate you for being here. Thank you so much. 